Welcome to the Best of MBS podcast, a collection of the best interviews hosted by Michael Bungay-Stanier, best-selling author of The Coaching Habit and How to Begin. Today's interview is from the We Will Get Through This podcast. Here's your host, MBS. So some of you know that it's a bit of a liminal time for me. You know, it's about a year ago since I formally stepped away from being the CEO at Box of Crayons. It's about four or five months since I stopped being pretty involved on day-to-day stuff and went, right, that's behind me. Now I'm stepping out into this slightly unknown future and how exciting and how, ooh, what what's happening here? <laughs> and part of my approach to trying to understand what my future is, how I could best serve people, what I want to create in this world, how I want to show up, is to try and not crowd out my life. Mm. Because if I'm honest, I have been, I've had a full schedule for my all my life. Uh, it's, a, it's a default I have. I like being busy. I've, I've been rewarded for being busy. I've, I've always feel, felt slightly overcommitted. And now I've got this this commitment to try and create blank space, to try and keep open calendar, to try and have white space in my life. And part of me is thrilled by it, and part of me gets a little anxious about it. <laughs> Every time I see something in my calendar, which is like, what am I doing today? And there's no person on this planet better to help me understand white space, both its power and how to think about it and manage it, than my guest, Juliet Fund. So she is the CEO of White Space at Work, which is an organizational efficient. So she is an organizational efficiency advisor to Fortune 500 companies. She is tough yet loving guide to thousands of white space learners and fans, and a globally recognized warrior in the battle of effectiveness versus reactive busyness. So you can see immediately why I'm pretty excited about (laughs) having this conversation. She's been working at home full-time for 24 years and running a 100% virtual team since the day she launched her organization. And she's actually coming to us today from New Zealand, and there's a story there that we may well hear. But Juliet, first of all, welcome. So nice of you to be here. My friend, I'm excited. I'm excited Mm -hmm. too. And I need you to start off by explaining to me, (laughs) well, first of all, what is white space, but why does it make me anxious? Why does it make me slightly twitchy every time I see that space opening up in my own calendar? Yes. And that's actually the derivation of the original term. White space came from coaching executives 15, 20 years ago, looking at the white spaces on the calendar and and Uh, why they are so important. But the, um, the definition, if we want to start there, is for us, a strategic pause taken between activities. So that means any pause, and it's not a lazy pause, a nappy pause, a sloppy pause, an accidental pause. It's a strategic pause to do several things within that openness that are so critical to business and to life, to, to step back, to breathe, to strategize, to, um, to look inward, to look forward, all the things that we don't do when we're in constant motion. That's what the white space is for. And more and more in a busy world, we take it in teeny, teeny, tiny sips. And even those do, as you said, kind of make us anxious because the moving, the going, the dopamine is so much, it's a satisfying uh, moving, sta- moving, what do you call it in the airport? Where you're moving, moving oh yeah, yeah, like a moving stereocator or something, yeah. Yes, and you're just going and there's a satisfaction to, I'm doing, I'm checking boxes, I'm moving, mm-hmm. I'm progressing. And then once we stop this tingly discomfort, it, it really does begin. I think some of it is just plain 
Uh, well, some of it is just plain dopamine withdrawal because right. we are so addicted to the devices and the touching of the screens. But some of the discomfort is really just unfamiliarity and the immediate argument in our heads about the value of that time, that there is mm-hmm. a sense immediately of what am I doing? I'm not producing. I'm not adding. I'm not advancing because we don't have a value system that is culturally supported in our companies that says that stepping back might be the most efficient and effective thing that you do all day long. And if we were surrounded by people who believed in it, we would feel far less fear. If you had a whole bunch of colleagues that were like, oh, we took 30 minutes of thinking time today, (laughs) hooray for you, then you'd feel more fortified. So how do you help people in organizations? Because, you know, you do work with the biggest organizations around the world. How do you help them come to understand the value of space like this? It's interesting because we we have built a brand on Fortune, but I will tell you that we're we're doing a lot of work now with mid-sized and smaller companies, and we're noticing that the pro we we I think thought maybe these problems were only really articulated in the larger companies. Of course, they're not. Of course, everybody's too. Mm-hmm. Big. And so it's interesting to see across the board um, the challenges that people face. And I just lost your question for a minute. I was so oh, excited about it. I was like, how do you, how do you actually convince people of the value of this oh, time yeah. and, okay. and convince it in a way that people are willing to think about changing their behavior? Cause right. if I put money on it, I'd say you get a lot of people nodding their head going, yep, you're right. No, you're right. No, you, you're, you're totally, I should do this. <laughs> I should have this space, but that's <laughs> not, that's a sort of, you know, a tepid intellectual agreement rather than a fully invested, oh my God, things have to change around here. Yes. And there are different doorways into that conversation. So for the individual, one of the critical factors is to make the bar of entry really, really low. And I, I swear to you that if your listeners take 30 seconds of timed white space three times a day, that that is sufficient to change the nature of how they work because we don't stop. So just making a low entry of just Mm. a little bit, just a sip, like a glass of water that just every once in a while you just take a little sip instead of I'm going to take a legal pad and go off into Starbucks (laughs) and spend an hour. And I think that's a big big piece of it on an individual level. Then on an organizational level there, we basically have found that there are three types of conversations that can validate this content and this um, important shift in norms. One is Mm -hmm. the doorway of the heart. This is leaders who just don't want people to be so fried and exhausted and spent all the time and they get the recuperative aspect of white space. Now, I mean, post-COVID, staggeringly worse in every possible direction. Right, it's relentless. (laughs) There is no escape. (laughs) Yeah, working every single second, wake up, fall on the laptop, work all day, homeschooling, dinner, fall on the laptop, fall to bed, put the laptop on the floor, fall asleep, wake up, pick up the laptop, go. And that's- every single day, all day long. So that, yep. that doorway of sustainability, humanity, heart, I don't want my people to work this way. That's one way to uh, galvanize interest. A second way is ideas. Because great ideas stand outside the perimeter of our busyness waiting for access to us. Oh, I love that. So, what a striking visual that is. It is yeah, a great idea. It's just, just hanging lurking, out. <laughs> lurking slightly outside your vision. They're like, they're waving and you can't quite see it yeah. yet. And you've got to stop and look around to see yeah, them. Yeah, and sometimes maybe they even get sad at a certain point and turn around and start wandering <laughs> off. It's too right. long, right? 
So that the doorway of ideas in terms of going to a team or an executive or an individual and saying, if you're an innovation team, if you're a creative team, if you're facing clients with solutions you have to create for them, are you opening up a container into which that thought can flow? And that is the white space. And so that can be a very powerful validator. But honestly, in the world of business where we, where it's a game that we keep score of with money, um, the most obvious way of talking about this is just to uh, quantify the waste of all the stupid work that people do in emails and meetings and decks and reports, and then show executives how much talent time they're wasting and have them remove some of that. And then what you hope is that when you've excavated the white space, now you have a, a population who's willing to consider letting it stay after it's been excavated from underneath all that junk. And that's one of the things that we kind of uniquely focus on is this quantification piece. I love that. You know, I sometimes when I'm giving a talk in the good old days when I gave talks Mm. and I'll talk about a a similar but different concept. I say, look, everything falls into three buckets, bad work, good work, and great work. And Mm. great work is the work that has more impact and the work that has more meaning. Good work is your job description. And I'll go, and bad work, bad work is the mind-numbing, soul-sucking, life-crushing work that makes you want right. to pick up a pen and stab yourself in the eye. Right. And then I'll go, does anybody not know what I'm talking about? <laughs> and everybody laughs. I mean, it's a guaranteed laugh every time. Because everybody knows that stupid work, which is you're like, this is my – this is my one and precious life. <laughs> I'm doing yes. this. What and is going I'm, on here? And I would add to that now that I think there's a lot of post-COVID conversation that's fresh to mind. So if you're listening to this in 15 years, we'll we'll give you some slack to, to not dial in. But the, the um, we call the new activity that's been layered onto all of the previous stupid work, NLP activity, nervous, lonely, panicked. So we have this yes. other element now where we're so isolated and we're anxious and it's just all moving into more emails and more Zoom calls and because we don't know what to do with the energy. Mm. So it's generating activity and that activity is largely low value or a lot, a lot of it is low value. I want to go back to the insight you shared around how you do this as an individual. And mm-hmm. you said three 30-minute sips, a 30-second sips in a day can shift things. Tell me more about that. I mean, how does such a short, small, seemingly small investment make such a big difference? So that, and that was just a number thrown off. It's not a prescription that I've said before, but the the basic concept is that learning to take small sips is Mm. fine. And I'm not, so there will be the people who love those, those GTD people who go, how many sips and how long and how many times, you know, do I set a timer? (laughs) But it's more about just teaching yourself to make friends with a moment that is unfilled. Mm. So when neurologists talk about rest, there are actually seven different kinds of a break that you can take. And one of them is the closest that we've found to our definition of white space, and it's called unfilled rest. Just a simple moment of nothingness into which all your great ideas can flow or your body can reboot or you can finish a client call and think about how it went, or you can be before a client call and you think about how you want to be. And all of the thinking that is not present in an activity-only business day comes in these little moments. And I'll tell you, you know, one of the hardest things for me in my life has been trying to walk the talk in public of white space because I am such a hyper um, energizer bunny go-go lady. 
And yeah. my personal main utilization of white space is in those small sips. I I am just too on to do three <laughs> minutes of white space unless there's a tragedy that I have to deal with. You right. know, but a minute here, three minutes there, two minutes there, ten seconds before my meal to orient myself in a lovely restaurant and become present, these tiny sips change the way that you live and the way that you appreciate and the way that you show up. I want to connect to that that statement around that, you know, is it in a restaurant ten seconds to become present? Is that is that the essence of these little breaks, a, a moment of kind of gathering yourself and being present to who you are and where you are and just what what's happened and what might happen? Uh, that's part of it. I think that's too individual and personal a definition. In sure. your personal life, yes. 90% of the application that we we push for white space is a business application. So it's kind of like I'm thinking of one of those old prices, right, wheels where you roll it and it goes tick, 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 tick. tick. <laughs> yeah. There's so many different benefits and you just tick, 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 which one you're going to get. One is being present. One is yeah. being grateful. Those are personal. On the business side, being um, able to look at your own business behavior and reflect and improve, making room mm. for ideas, uh, being objective or connecting dots in the creation of plans and processes. So there's a lot of different benefits that that open time can provide for you. I would say becoming present is one. It's a little bit more sure. on the wellness personal side, but it's, yeah. it is definitely one. And for those more business-oriented benefits, do you, do you look to prime yourself around the one that you're looking for, or do you just create the space and the thing that's needed or the thing that's just there is the thing that shows up? It's almost more macro than that. You want to be, if you watch the movie in your head of the executive you dream of being someday, mm. that person definitely has white space. That person <laughs> definitely is not running with a Luna bar stuck in the corner of their mouth instead of lunch down a hallway to the next meeting mm -hmm. they're late for. So that you start from the very, very macro of the place I'm heading is a place with oxygen in the system, with nice thoughtfulness and time and and authority over my schedule. That's where I'm heading. And then you start going backwards and saying, if I learn to live and work this way, um, I guess then there is this leap of faith piece of it where you just have to believe that uh, sanity and clarity is coming, maybe because you get to know me or another white space zealot and they, they promise it to you. But I guess there is a little leap of faith in there when you yeah. when experiment with the behavior, but, but maybe no more so than eat less carbs, lose some weight. You know, they just, there's a lot of things right. that are magical until you see them happen. I love that. And it's true that one of the things that's so great about talking to you is that you are a focused, ambitious woman who is also embodying white space. And, you know, you have, you have ambition, you have success, and you also have white space. So they're not mutually or, or kind of exclusive to each other like that. They actually, I think this is such a juicy conversation that I can't remember the last time I had, which is it comes down for me personally, and I feel a little more chummy with you than the average podcaster, so I'll be more <laughs> personal, but it's about how much success is the amount of success that I need to check the box of I did enough in my life and now I can mm -hmm. relax. And that is, that is a big question for high achieving smart people. And 
I ask it, my, you know, you were, you and I were on a, a an event together recently where we were talking about Brene Brown and, and right. the pain of being an expert and an author and looking at Brene and going, oh gosh, I wish I didn't have to become Brene or yeah. Marie or whoever you love. That pressure of, I have to keep climbing a ladder that gets higher as I climb it for mm-hmm. my career instead of saying, what if I helped a whole bunch of people and that that was enough? And right. there, is, there is a translation of that entrepreneurial concept into every business to say, how much is the amount? And, and I'm, I'll tell you honestly, once you get into Fortune where you have a shareholder call and it's all about stock, then that does become more difficult because there is no such thing as enough profitability. Right. Um, but there's a lot of different conversations on the way to that end point where the question of how how much am I contributing or working becomes something that you want to control and not simply feel like the world is driving you. And once you control it, then you can choose to have some white space as part of the mix. I love that. I mean, I utterly agree that until you've had a conversation with yourself around what does success mean to me, what mm-hmm. is an, how much is enough for me, there is it's it it must be very difficult to manage white space because you're it always whatever you're doing feels insufficient because always. that sense of success is always but but wait i've only sold 10 million books that's not there's yep. other people out there who've sold 100 million i'm right. a, how do i get to 100 million and you that 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 chasing the the always out of reach success is like it's, it's, it's a, Ahab and the white whale. It's, 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 inevi- it's, it's doomed. I don't know if this is the very best analogy, but I was doing a keynote for PetSmart many years ago, and I remember we got into this really rich conversation about a cancer drive that they had done the year before, and they'd raised $150 million for cancer. And this year, they were going to raise $170 million, And everybody right. was pumped up to try to figure out how to create that additional 20 And I posed the question just as a point of dialogue of if we raised $150 million again this year or whatever the number was, wouldn't that be awesome? Right. And why is there that sense? that is parallel in every single area of our lives of if I did 150 last year, I'm going to do 170. I know business has growth associated with it as a natural part of business, but this Mm -hmm. is an interesting question on a human level that always upping the ante every single second. Yeah. And that, you know, it's been said by other people smarter than me that, you know, the only, the only thing with unchecked growth is cancer. And, (laughs) you know, that's, that's a powerful metaphor if you stop and think about it because we often don't think about what we're doing by not defining success is is saying it is unchecked growth that we are we are after inevitable inexorable growth now here's a transition back to to white space a little bit one of the best phrases i've heard in my last decade was i can't remember who this came from but con- it was an advice to executives i think it was in a live session control or growth pick one. Mm. And for me, that became a really powerful mantra that led back to white space to say, okay, I can still grow. If I let go of some of the levers of that growth, I still, as an executive or an entrepreneur, can still have white space. Where I can't is, I can't hold all the levers, keep all the control, and have white space. So there, there, it's not only about questioning growth, it's about the manner in which we pursue it as leaders that gives us individual white space. I imagine 
because this is true for me, and therefore I imagine it's true for everybody in the entire universe, that <laughs> part, of, part of the quest to gain white space requires you to get a little cleaner and clearer and bolder about the boundaries that you maintain. Oh, yes. And in boundaries, for me, it comes down to, do you know what to say no to and do you know how to say no? Yes, we wrote a whole My experience thing. is people are chronically terrible at that. And I'm wondering how you guide people to get a little bolder about being able to say no. Yeah, that's such a giant topic. So um, <laughs> it really is there. So I'm, I have different tools that are kind of flooding into my head right now because we, sure. we wrote a whole course on the question that you just asked me. Um, so again, culturally norming something is the solution to the fear. Because when you're an individual trying to say, I've decided that I'm not going to answer emails on weekends, that's terrifying in a culture where status is gained and the game is played by answering to your boss in 20 Mm -hmm. minutes on a Sunday morning. But if you can get together as a small team and have dialogue around something that we call a gap, a group availability policy, where you together say, well, we're going to decide that when a client makes a request at four o'clock on a Friday, that we have a policy about whether we say yes or no. We're going to decide right. about whether we work now we're in, you know, there's no such thing as the end of the day post-COVID. We're going to decide that after eight o'clock, the workday is over or six o'clock or whatever it be. And it's going to become a policy for our little team of two or our giant team of 2000. Once you get in dialogue about things that you norm together, you notice some of the scariness of no begins to begins to evaporate. Another, another great way to look at no is to always be empathetic to the person asking you and frame your no in a way that serves them. So right. for instance, people are very afraid to set an email checking schedule and not be constantly available to clients. But if they phrase it with new clients to say, I'm going to be available to you at predictable times. Mm-hmm. I'm be, I'm, you know that I will check my email at 9, 11, 1, 3, and 5 or at every meal time or once every hour. Now you're telling the client, you know when to reach me. And actually there was a study done with nurses where they, first they had a bunch of patients and the nurses came whenever anyone called the push, push the button. And then they made a schedule so that everyone knew what time the nurses were going to arrive. And of course, nobody needed to push the button as much in between. So that's an example of, it's a no to say to your client, I'm not going to respond to your email in a minute. But it's yes to say, I'm going to think empathetically about why you're so urgent. And I'm going to talk to you about, hey, you know when to reach me. I'll always check at these times. And so that that empathizing with the asker and framing it as softly as you can is is one of my favorite approaches to know. Yeah, there's so much that's good there, Juliet. I mean, that that piece around how to reframe it. You know, for me, I immediately go make the bug a feature. Yeah, <laughs> so like it's yes, not yes. look at how I'm yes. unavailable. It's like look how reliably I am available at these specific times for you. Yes. And suddenly I'm like, oh, look at look how special I am. Look at <laughs> look how I, look how I'm getting supported around that. 
So there's a very smart piece of reframing and rethinking that you offer up in that. And you can't always do it. I mean, sometimes you have to just do, I think we call it the no sandwich. There's versions of this around where you sandwich your no in between two slices of graciousness. So you begin with, Michael, I think your podcast is amazing. I'm not going to be able to do it, but I really wish you enormous luck with every guest to come. And so there's a little sweetness and graciousness around both sides of the no. Uh, I think the hardest no for people is no to your boss. And that's right. the one where everybody freezes up. So maybe we should just touch on that very briefly. Yeah, please. Um, when your boss is, when your boss doesn't have a talent to do what we call seeing the plate, no is very hard. Seeing the plate is when you're an executive and you stop and you you look in your head and you imagine whatever my team have on their plate already before mm. I assign the next thing. And that sense of seeing the plate is a very empathetic and advanced thing for a leader to do, but most of them don't do it. They just keep saying, pick up this brick and then this brick and then this brick and then this brick. Right. No idea how your many- capacity is infinite. Keep yeah. going. <laughs> right, right. So one of the things that you can do if a leader is asking you to do more than you can do functionally or in an effective manner is you can use the word which. You can say, dear leader, which of the six things that I'm about to screen share with you would you like my efforts and energy focused on in the next two weeks? And the word which helps a leader understand that there is a finite nature to your energy as opposed to saying no to I as opposed to saying no to brick number seven, you can just say, Oh, well, thank you for that assignment of brick number seven. Here's mm-hmm. the eleven bricks you already gave me. Which <laughs> right. of them would you prefer to have as my current priority? And part of the power of that is a inviting a shared responsibility to figure this out. You're not saying no. You're saying, I can't wait to find out That's which right. of these feels most important to you. Oh, because yeah. Right. I'm super excited to learn and support your most important strategic focus for the next two weeks. So yeah, of yeah. all the things that are most important to you, which of these would help you the most? <laughs> and they're like, and, you're such a good employee. I love your your willingness to stay strategic with me around that. Right. And that which piece should have certain extra resonance right now because I wasn't that satire of people falling onto the laptop there, there's an emergency. Yeah, there's no satire. Right now. It's not satire. Every executive I sp- speak to, I c- literally had three of these yesterday who said, I am working every minute of the day. I was on a phone call yesterday with an executive who said his wife came up and said, you spent 32 minutes with the family today. And she had logged the four minutes at breakfast between calls and the seven minutes here. And and so this this now this idea of no creating availability policies, figuring out when to push back, super, super, super critical. And if I could add slightly off topic to go to audio only on as many phone calls as you possibly can right now, the Zoom fatigue is so serious. And so it's been talked about, but not enough Um, that we need huge, huge shifts in the percentage of on camera to off camera. That's fantastic. And it's such a, it snuck up on us because, you know, when it was an occasional thing, it actually felt lovely to have those video pieces. But when you're on it all the time and staring at others and staring at yourself and staring at the camera, it is, it is draining. Yeah, it really is. I don't think people listen as well either because of the distractions. I think that's true. You know, for years, it's interesting for years when I've been, people have talked about how do you coach? I've always said, look, I'm, I'm not a great phone person, but when I coach people, I often will prefer to coach on the phone because it allows me to be more present to them mm. rather than 
getting caught up in actually status games. You know, if I'm in their office, I'm playing, I'm doing all sorts of weird things to try and make me feel more important to them. (laughs) Look how I'm sitting. Look how I'm looking curious. (laughs) Whereas when I'm actually on the phone, I can be, I can just be genuinely curious and genuinely helping my very best to help the person out. Mm, mm. Julia, it's such a great conversation. And um, there will be people who want to find out more about you and your company and the like. Where would you point them to? Yes. So we are at whitespaceatwork.com, but we also talked about, we are on a mission right now to support teams through this really, really difficult time post COVID and we don't know how long it's going to go. So we also created a complimentary assessment that they could take that we talked about offering. Um, This assessment will take the temperature of morale, fatigue, efficiency in this difficult time, which may actually be playing out for a while now. So they can access that at howisyourteam.com. And that is a really great tool that when they take it, they also get instruction and um, some guidance back depending on where they've rated themselves. And and for everybody listening in, you can tell – Juliet's brilliance around articulating not only the challenge but also solutions in a way that feel tangible and practical and memorable and actable upon. So I'd very much encourage you to check out her resources that she's offering online. Juliet, you are awesome. Thank you so much for being part of this with me. Thanks, honey. Great to be with you. We hope you enjoyed this Best of MBS interview. Want more great content? Head to mbs.works. There you'll find MBS's new podcast, Two Pages. You can learn about his best-selling books, and you can join the newsletter. That's mbs.works.